Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, guys. In order to keep the show ad-free and increase the frequency of production, donations are a big help. Some of you have been very generous in donating, and I appreciate it greatly. If you could give to the show's Patreon account, it would result in good karma and buttress the show's prospects. The URL is www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash leader one, L-E-A-D-E-R-O-N-E, www.patreon.com slash leader one. Thank you so much. June 28, 1891. Hardships came early to him. He was the last of eight children born to Johann and Matilda. They were Prussian immigrants who owned and worked a so-called dirt farm outside of Warren, Minnesota. The land was barely arable, and the entire family spent nearly every waking hour tending to the soil. They had no experience in agriculture and the fruits of their labors reflected that. Carl had his own share of the chores. When the government mandated that all children must attend school from the age of five onwards, it didn't give him a reprieve from his farm work. The time he lost to school was cut out of his sleep schedule. On weekdays, Carl only got two hours of sleep per night. After waking, he would do back-breaking manual labor until it was time to go to school. This hard schedule of menial labor on little sleep took a toll on Carl's health. The effects began as chronic fatigue and got worse. If he was called upon in class, the teacher's question was greeted with a blank-eyed stare. His peers could not engage him in play. He was like a zombie. He developed a racking cough that persisted for a long time. He experienced other complications. His family could not afford medical care, so his health problems went untreated. It culminated in an ear infection that swelled to such a degree that it left him deaf in that ear. The infection also affected his equilibrium. He was unable to walk straight. That meant he couldn't work and that his parents would not abide. 
they still couldn't afford the services of a doctor. So his father applied the medical knowledge he learned during his experience with animal husbandry. One evening, the entire family gathered around the dining table. They held Carl's weak and helpless body down. His father went at Carl's ear with a kitchen knife. He tried to excise the source of the infection like he would with a cow. Carl squealed in agony. His brothers struggled to hold him down. He passed out from the pain and just in time. Had he thrashed about much longer, the knife would have inadvertently cut into his brain. A few minutes later, he woke when scalding hot water was poured into his ear to clean the affected area. Despite the efforts of the entire family to restrain him, he broke free. He was screaming. When one of his brothers attempted to restrain him, he punched his brother in the face. His family said his ability to control his temper was extracted throughout the course of the surgery somehow. Speculation placed the blame on his father, who may have inflicted brain damage on Carl. The frontal lobe, which regulates impulse control, may have been damaged. From that day onwards, Carl's disposition changed radically. He was wild and violent. The slightest insult, uttered with even the subtlest of implications, was enough to set him off and he would physically assault the offender. His father failed to stem the infection. It continued to spread until there was no other recourse but to admit Carl to a hospital. He spent several weeks there in recovery. The cuts his father made only enabled the passage of bacteria to spread deeper into his brain. Carl had a few seizures while in hospital. At the time Carl returned home, his family was falling apart. The state of abject poverty in which they were living was exacerbated by Carl's stay in the hospital. His brothers got jobs outside of the family's farm and eventually moved out of the house. Carl was not nearly as obedient and committed to the farm as he was before his stay in the hospital. He would often lash out when asked to perform farm work. Johann left the house and the family. Matilda sold off parts of the land. None of her children sent money home. They didn't have warm and loving memories of their childhood because their parents were not affectionate in word or deed. All their children remembered about their childhoods consisted of working and having emotionally unavailable parents who themselves worked endless hours at the farm. With no farm work to do, Carl was determined to live life on his own terms. His school attendance record was spotty at best. He would wander around the town of Warren, taking in the sights. He was fascinated by the economic disparities. The citizens of Warren were either wealthy or living in wretched poverty. He didn't have any explanations for this. He was just determined that he was going to find a way to have the money and material splendor he observed in the tonier sections of town. He was soon arrested for the first time. He helped himself to his father's old liquor stash, and he was arrested for public intoxication. He was fighting another boy at the time. With any residual inhibitions eliminated, 
he became even more violent under the influence of alcohol. Carl would sometimes enter the homes of the privileged and steal things. It started with stealing food. One day he found a revolver in a glass display cabinet. He took it and fled. The police arrested Carl at his family's home. He already had a reputation around town as a troublemaker, so the process of elimination drew a chalk outline straight to his door. 1902. Carl Pan's room was processed into the care of the Minnesota State Reform School. He was 11 years old. When he met the warden, he was instructed to address him as Father. The warden asked him about his homosexual proclivities. Carl had never heard of homosexuality, nor did he experience anything of the sort. Regardless of his ignorance of the matter, he was stripped from the waist down, whereupon the warden examined his anus and genitals to detect signs of the love that dare not speak its name at the time. No evidence was found. The warden described what a homosexual predator would do to him, and he did not spare him the graphic details. Carl left his office in a state of shock. The other boys knew he was a brawler, so he wasn't targeted for harassment. He wasn't interested in making friends, so he kept to himself. In the morning, two of the institution's guards took Carl to a wooden warehouse far afield from the school's property. They referred to it as the, quote, painting room, end quote. It wasn't an art studio. The boys were brought there for an initiation. The initiation consisted of being painted black and blue. The purpose was to shock the boys out of their old behaviors. It was also done to demonstrate what would happen if they ran afoul of the institution's rules. The second time in two days, Carl was stripped naked. He was fastened face down to a wooden bench. A threadbare towel soaked in brine was laid out over his back. The next step was to whip him. He was whipped by a belt that was specially designed according to the warden's stringent specifications. It was perforated, and every time it struck Carl's back, it drew skin up into the holes, leaving a patchwork of blisters behind. When the belt broke a blister open, the brine would be absorbed into the raw expanse of skin, further adding to the pain. For this and many other whippings at the painting room, the warden watched Carl get whipped. Every time Carl cried out, the warden reveled in sadistic glee. When Carl clued into the fact that the warden and his goons derived pleasure from his pain, he became silent. This only goaded the guards onward. They whipped him harder and harder into a frenzy. Carl refused to give them the satisfaction of crying out. The intent behind the whipping was to drive all the aggression and insolence out of the boys. There are exceptions to every rule. What they accomplished with Carl Pan's room was that they beat all the weakness and empathy out of him. This was the pot from whence Pansrum emerged as the hard-boiled man for which he would be long remembered in the annals of crime. After the whippings, Carl was to report to his classes, 
where the lessons would focus on the Bible and discussions of morality. It was more like indoctrination and rote learning than the enrichment and enlightenment of education. After classes, there were jobs to do. Carl had no marketable skills, so he worked in the kitchens. He prepared meals for the officers and the warden. His first time in the kitchen, he was mostly focused on finding food to steal. He suddenly came up with an idea on how he could exact revenge on the guards. He urinated into every liquid he could find. Whenever he had a moment to himself in the kitchen, he would masturbate and ejaculate into the food. Carl didn't do well in his classes. He had no respect for the Bible-thumping instructors. He had no Christian faith to speak of. His attitude became apparent, and he was dragged to the painting room on a daily basis. The guards interpreted Carl's conduct as a direct challenge to their authority. Tried though they did, they could not break his will. The way they saw it, the only way to handle this situation was to double their efforts. The guards were not screened in any way, so it was unknown to the school if any of them had a criminal record. Most of them were uneducated and had a penchant for sadism. The prospect of whipping the boys thrilled them. Still, no matter what they did, they still could not break Carl Panzerum's spirit. The sessions at the painting room ended not because Carl reached the end of his rope, but because the guards were exhausted. Torture is hard work. The warden refused to accept this defeat. He ordered a crank-operated paddling machine. This way the child could be beaten for long periods of time, and they would be reliant not upon the energy reserves of the torturer, but upon the endurance of the contraption. The warden and the guard's capacity to inflict torment upon the boys was inexhaustible. He felt now that this was the way to instill an appreciation for godliness and submission to authority in Carl. The problem with this device was its efficiency. Every strike was the same as the last. One could get used to the paddling and tune it out, given their ability to predict its every movement. Even the other boys grew accustomed to this punishment. The warden also developed a theory that Carl's defiance was an inspiration to the other boys, and they saw him as a hero they could emulate. They rebelled in keeping with his example. The warden would not be deterred. He personally oversaw the new punishments. Sexual humiliation was reintroduced. Carl continued in his quest for vengeance by tainting the food that was served to the warden and the guards. He advanced this practice to what he considered to be the next level. After locating the kitchen's supply of rat poison, he poured a substantial amount into the warden's meal. He knew there was a risk that he was committing murder, but he was as devoid of mercy as the warden had been with him. Lucky for the warden, the kitchen supervisor spotted the open container of rat poison. Carl put it in the warden's coffee. This malfeasance was reported. Carl was transferred from the kitchen to cleaning detail. He was to clean the institution inside and out. The warden and staff were unable to dream up more ways to torture Carl. No matter how much they tortured him, 
They only succeeded in dousing the inferno of rage within him with gasoline. Carl's experience at the school did shape his worldview in one respect. He surmised that the strong always prevailed over the weak. The guards could torture him because they were bigger, stronger, and endowed with authority. Boys his own age couldn't take Carl down in a fight. The younger boys, on the other hand, were easy targets for his wrath. The school insisted that devout Christians would be empowered by God. It seemed to Carl that this was more applicable in the ancient societies described in the Bible than in modern-day America. The staff of the school weren't doing under others as the others had done to them. It was hypocrisy, and Carl knew it. In the real world, Carl Panzerum understood the fundamental law that seemed to govern humanity and its relations with one another. Might makes right. Carl went on a rampage. He would bully and beat up the younger boys, often bringing them perilously close to the brink of death. When he was punished for this, he accepted it without complaint. He would spit in the faces of authority. The warden had to take a different tack to squash Carl's capacity for aggression and rebellion. His new plan was to work it out of him. The idea was that Carl's workload would be increased into the night. That way, he would be so exhausted he wouldn't have the energy to lash out. This would have worked with most of the boys, but they were unaware that Carl was the boy who lived on two hours of sleep for years. He had also done hard farm labor at night. He was inured to that very thing they thought would succeed in breaking him. Carl couldn't have dreamed this scenario better. After finishing the work, he had free reign for hours. He was left almost entirely unsupervised, so he had lots of time to do as he pleased. He certainly wasn't catching up on the cleaning he missed during the day, being the common assumption among the administration. He wasn't highly educated in the academic sense, and his understanding of society's moral code was underdeveloped, but Carl still possessed an above-average IQ. It occurred to him that the chemicals used for cleaning could be dangerous in the wrong hands when used for the wrong purposes. His newest act of vengeance manifested as arson. He doused the painting room with paint stripper. He set fire to the structure. The warden was enraged. The house and the torture implements he ordered were immolated. The fire department responded and investigated the causal factors typical with any conflagration. The warden feared that this would draw attention to the school's barbaric disciplinary practices. The arsonist's identity was no secret among the student body. Many of the oldest boys respected Carl for his willingness to take anybody on in a fight. They also admired his iron will in the face of formidable torture. Their respect for him was now buttressed by gratitude. A group of students known as the upperclassmen pulled Carl aside one day after lunch. They coached him on how to get paroled out of the school. Carl learned another lesson from this interaction. People will believe any lie you tell them if it is what they want to hear. The next day, much to his instructor's surprise, 
Harl was obedient and receptive. He was polite and courteous. Whatever dogma they dished out, he lapped it up and regurgitated it when they wished to ensure it was being retained. He would even ask challenging questions to convince them he was taking an active interest in his lessons. He came across as insightful, another unexpected development. He sold them on his newfound commitment to Christian faith, and they bought it. His behavior toward the guards changed as well. He reacted to them with humility and obedience. Within a month, the warden happily signed his parole papers. He was delighted by the turnaround he saw in the boy. He felt it was due entirely to his efforts. The truth was, Carl had just become calculating and given to exploiting others to achieve his own ends. His misanthropic perspective was consolidated by this experience. He hated his fellow man, knowing now that the strong preyed on the weak and lying would get him anything he wanted. His family's honesty and servility left them with nothing but victimhood and financial destitution. Carl wasn't about to make that mistake in his own adulthood. Carl's days on the farm were not over, however. He returned to his mother at the age of 13 in 1904 and went to work on the farm immediately. It was only the two of them. His siblings would no longer communicate with her because she was always asking them for money. The last of his brothers to remain had died, and his mother fell into a deep depression. She neglected the farm in toto, and the lack of maintenance left its limited arability to decline even further. Even the livestock suffered due to the lack of feeding. Carl was unmoved. He hated the house, the farm, and his family as much as anything else that provoked desire. He euthanized the sick animals and sold off the others. He tore out all the crops with potential for recovery. The sooner the farm died, the sooner he would have his freedom. As the farm continued to decline and more responsibilities were imposed upon him, he returned to his old watering holes in town. He made friends with some of the booze hounds before going to reform school. He became reacquainted with them so that he could mooch drinks from them. They were happy to oblige because they were amused by such a young boy who could drink so heavily. They would only outfit him with drinks for so long before the novelty wore off. He took to stealing money from his mother's purse to finance his drinking. She didn't have much to speak of, so he began to rob his old school friends for their pocket change. There was a Native American boy in town who was socially marginalized due to his ancestry. He became Carl's accomplice. Together they would terrorize many people in town. Carl didn't just rob their victims, though. He would strip them naked and order them to run. He enjoyed inflicting sexual humiliation on the men and boys. Carl's mother suspected that something untoward was happening, and she was worried. Carl would return home at the end of the day with money in his pockets and liquor on his breath. She confronted him one night as he was about to head out to the bars. She demanded that he make some concrete decisions for his life. She was shocked but happy when he announced he intended to become a priest. 
He said he found his calling in reform school. Matilda wrote a letter to the local seminary. She begged them to accept Carl to study theology with them. She also requested a bursary to finance his enrollment. The request was granted, and less than a week later, he was ensconced in the world of academia. He impressed his peers and his instructors, as he did during his final days at reform school. They found him witty and charming. Well, not everybody was fooled. A visiting German Lutheran priest gave a lecture, and he met Carl the same day. He recognized that the wit and charm was a facade. Beneath it was a void. He discerned that there was no real faith to speak of, and there was no bedrock foundation to the moral positions he took. The priest took it upon himself to test Carl. He grilled him on his knowledge constantly. His hope was that Carl would slip up and reveal the truth about what he was. Carl was a worthy opponent, matching him in wit, but he gradually lost patience with the priest and his frustration escalated. Their civil discourse degraded into acrimony. They had screaming matches. This was what the priest anticipated, and he was satisfied by his successful effort to expose it to all who had been taken in by Carl. The German reacted with corporal punishment. Carl was surprised that it could turn out this way. He told the man everything he wanted to hear, and it hadn't worked. During his time in the seminary, Carl continued to commit robberies to obtain drinking money. He eventually graduated to home invasions. Warren was a small and trusting town, and people usually left their doors unlocked. He not only stole money, but a new revolver. He took it with him everywhere he went. Knowing he carried such a lethal weapon empowered him. On Carl's last day at the seminary, the German beat Carl for his insolence once again. This time Carl's gun fell to the floor. After a moment of stunned silence, Carl picked it up. He aimed it between the priest's eyes. He pulled the trigger. Due to long-term disuse and neglect, the gun's inner mechanics failed to discharge a bullet. Carl was not deterred. He kept pulling the trigger until he was tackled by a pair of teachers who happened to arrive just in time. The rector had a private talk with Carl, wisely advising him against seeking a career in the priesthood. He confiscated his pistol. After he was expelled from seminary school, Carl fell back into his habit of roaming through town looking for trouble. He didn't tell his mother what happened, but when the bursary checks stopped coming in, the jig was up. They had it out, and the truth about what led to his expulsion was revealed. She made it known that he, she was deeply disappointed in him. She told him that if he intended to continue living under her roof, he would have to do farm work. This was no longer a condition Carl was willing to accept. He packed up his belongings and left that night. Carl became a transient. He fell in with traveling folk. He was favorably received. They felt some sympathy for him since he had become homeless at such a young age. They would share a bottle with him if he was part of the circle as it made its rounds. They were as welcoming as the bar patrons he befriended back home in Warren. 
One day he got on a boxcar and discovered a coterie of four middle-aged homeless men. At first, they were startled by him. They were settled and familiar with one another, so Carl was an interloper. Eventually, they welcomed him in. They shared their whiskey with him, and he was only too happy to imbibe. Later in the evening, it became clear that the welcome wagon expected to be compensated for its hospitality. One of the men said, Listen, kid, there is a thing that we all like to do together, something that feels real good, and we think you'll enjoy just as much as we do. The men untied their rope belts and disrobed from their filthy and distressed clothing. The condition of their bare skin was marginally more hygienic. They didn't have to say a word. He knew what their intentions were. There was a carnivorous and predatory look in their eyes. Carl said, I'm not so sure, fellas. Why don't you all just go ahead and do it yourselves? I won't pay you no mind. Think I've had enough fun for one night. One of the men said, Well, kid, it doesn't really work like that. See... You're kind of the center ring in this circus. You're the one we all want to see. They crept closer to him. Carl clung to his indignation. I told you no. I don't want nothing else. Got it? The man said, Oh yeah, kid, we've got it. But you're the one that's going to get it. The men pounced on Carl's a unit. They tore his clothes off as a cooperative until he was stark naked. They bent him over a pile of hay bales. Three of them held Carl down. Carl bucked and thrashed in an attempt to break free from their hold. The remaining man took his turn. This was a new kind of torture. Carl fought tooth and nail as the others took the reins. He would bite at their hands and kick outward at whoever was up at bat. He wasn't strong enough to prevail. For hours, his blood and their semen ran down his thighs in torrents. By the time they were finished, he was too exhausted to fight. When they were through with Carl, they tossed him out of the car while it was still moving. They could tell that with his second wind, he likely would have attacked them. Bearing this in mind, they didn't trust him enough to sleep in the same quarters. They tossed his clothing and belongings out with him. The next morning, Carl woke next to his scattered possessions. Every time he moved, he was seized by a shocking jolt of excruciating pain. His anus was encrusted with blood and other bodily secretions. The walk toward the next town was an ordeal in and of itself. Though he usually avoided tent cities and other gatherings for vagrants and transient workers, he spotted a small gathering and decided to join them. Sobriety had not been treating him so well, and he knew a bottle of rot-gut whiskey was likely to make the rounds. No one would ask him about his age, which was an added advantage. He was short on advantages. Carl met a young man and they had a few drinks together. Carl told him about his experience as a victim of homosexual rape. The young man was fascinated by Carl and listened keenly to his every word. The tone of the conversation shifted from gay sex as a form of torture to a wellspring of pleasure. 
They split away from the group and went to an isolated spot far afield. They drank more whiskey along the way. The young man advised Carl that drinking would make him feel more comfortable with the experience. They agreed to take turns. Carl demanded that he go first. The young man called over a group of older men. They gathered in a circle and passed Carl around. By this juncture, he was too intoxicated to protest or fight his way out of it. He soon passed out. When he woke, it dawned on him that sodomizing boys was one of life's great pleasures. After all, he was gang-raped twice in 24 hours. He figured there must be something to it if all those men were so eager to partake. As Carl traveled eastward, he generally distanced himself from other transients. When he did approach another hobo, he ensured that the man was alone. He had begun to rape other men. During a robbery, Carl pilfered a gun. He would often force pairs of vagrants to have sex with each other under threat of death, much to his amusement. The world could not strip him of his personal autonomy for long. On one occasion, a railway worker caught the men in the act. Panzerum forced a hobo to rape the rail worker. After all the robberies, the police apprehended Carl with Minnesota in sight. Due to his young age, they sent him to Red Wing Training School. The hardships Red Wing imposed upon its students paled in comparison to what he'd experienced before. The students had to do hard manual labor throughout the day on the school's farm. Carl had done that and done it on two hours of sleep. They couldn't exhaust a workhorse like Carl Panzerum, and the punishments were petty and harmless compared to what he experienced at the painting room. Carl graduated from the School of Hard Knocks. What could they do to him that was worse than anal rape? Red Wing was more like a school than a reformatory, and the educational curriculum was not as focused on religious indoctrination. The administration's perspective on Carl Panzerum was that he had been going through a rough patch and would prosper with the appropriate guidance. The student body had an entirely different view of Carl. He had once been a bully. Now he was a predator. If another boy had something he wanted, he took it. That included sex. At night, he would single out the weakest link and exploit him for his own ends. Anyone who didn't want to cooperate was threatened with violence and shame. This was an extreme and malignant feeling of entitlement, and nothing would interfere when Carl endeavored to satiate his carnal appetite. While most resisted or tried to resist Carl's advances, one exception was a boy named Jimmy. He was 15 years old and posed no threat of any kind to Carl. He would chat with Carl, and the two became comfortable with each other. They eventually bonded and became inseparable. Carl had no conception of what a normal and healthy sexual relationship consisted of. In his mind, the basis of any sexual interaction was controlling power and violence. He couldn't bring himself to subject his only friend to something so mean-spirited. Carl and Jimmy escaped from Red Wing together. They broke into churches and stole anything of value they could find. Once they stripped the institution of all its monetary and material value, they would set it on fire. They became serial arsonists. 
They left a trail of fire behind them, and it took a long time for the law to track them down, since the evidence was immolated beyond recognition. They moved from town to town, and with little to no communication between police departments, cooperative investigations could not be orchestrated, and the FBI had yet to be created. They didn't get away scot-free, however. One day, Jimmy tried to sell a pair of candlesticks that were stolen from a church. He was reported and arrested for larceny. Carl was asleep back at the camp they set up. Carl only discovered what happened days later when he went into town. Jimmy had already been sent to an adult prison. Carl was resigned to walk alone. He would travel aimlessly, rarely settling in one place for long. Carl ran out of money in Kansas. He decided to embark on a new direction for the purpose of improving his prospects. He enjoyed violence, and though he hadn't killed anybody, he knew the potential resided dormant within him. The American military were still engaged in martial conflict with Native Americans, and Carl Panthorn was eager to shed his fair share of the blood. He reported to an Army recruiting office at the age of 15. He was inebriated at the time. The Army was happy to have him. He chafed against the harsh discipline of basic training, but he excelled in weapons training, and they identified leadership potential. However, he was caught trying to fence goods he pilfered from the base. This kind of offense was viewed as treasonous, and he was court-martialed. He was taken directly to Fort Leavenworth Prison. His fellow ex-soldiers were outraged by this treasonous behavior, and they were out for blood. He held his own against them for the most part. He didn't always do as well with the rest of the prison population. He was raped and beaten several times. However it impacted him internally, he would shrug it off afterwards. He didn't want these men to think they could break him. It was rough at first, but within a month he won as many fights as he lost. He fought back as hard as he could, so he didn't make it easy for them. He had also lost his luster in the eyes of the rapists. He disobeyed the guards, refusing every order. They would use force, but he would retaliate with as much aggression he could muster. The guards would beat him to the brink of death and expect inmates to finish him off once he was enfeebled. One of their punishments was to place an inmate into a straitjacket and tighten it to the point that they would faint. This was done to Carl daily for a time, but he never let on that he was suffering. The rest of the inmates came to respect him for his disobedience. They would shield him from the guards where possible and cheer for him when they couldn't. The staff forced Carl and other men in his grade to do hard labor while shackled to a ball and chain. They clearly knew nothing about his history. This only made him stronger. By the end of his first year in prison, he was as strong as two inmates combined. He was so tough that when the guards beat him, they got no reaction. He was physically and spiritually unbreakable. Eventually, the guards gave him a wide berth. At this point, Carl sought out the pedophiles and pederasts who targeted him for rape and beatings when he first arrived, and they finally faced the retribution they had coming to them. Carl Panzerum's transformation was complete. His capacity to visit violence upon others without any consideration for mercy and compassion 
was fully developed. He was fully loaded. God help anybody in the outside world who dared to walk into his scope. At the age of 19, Carl Panzerum was free and traveling from town to town again. This time he cut a different figure. He was six feet tall and weighed 199 pounds of pure muscle. He wasn't victimized by any of the vagrants with whom he shared boxcar space. He brutalized and raped all who had tested him. Carl Panzerum was homosexual. He would deny this to others and would say the reason he avoided sexual encounters with women was because he considered them unclean. He did rape a female transient while traveling to Colorado, and it didn't do much to dispel his theory about the fairer sex. She gave him gonorrhea. He stopped and underwent medical attention. While the infection cleared up, he got caught stealing a bicycle. While in jail, a safecracker taught him his craft in exchange for protection. He broke into the jail to free the safecracker after he was released, but was caught by the guards and was sentenced to another month. This was just fine with Carl. He hadn't finished learning all the tricks of the safe-cracking trade. The old man assumed Carl came for him because of a crush. Instead of teaching Carl how to use explosives and robberies, he kissed him on the mouth. Carl didn't react. The safe-cracker interpreted this as submission. He tried to remove Carl's clothing. Carl was not ready for this. He yanked him out of his jumpsuit and slammed him to the floor. He inflicted brute violence on the man. The safecracker crawled back to his cell. Their friendship terminated. Carl began to drift again after his release. He robbed churches and burned them down. He stole bicycles and used them as transportation. He took a job as a bouncer at Colonel Dickey's Wild West show. Fighting for pay appealed to him greatly. The problem was he ended up fighting with nearly every man who was employed with the carnival. The end of the line came when a horse bumped into him and he punched it out cold. The entire show depended on the animals and their well-being was essential. Carl was determined to get revenge, and he did. He came back late at night and set fire to two tents, the cooks and the horses. The staff woke to the sound of distressed horses. Carl watched the inferno from afar, delighting in the visage. All the animals died, and the carnival along with them. Satisfied, Carl caught the next train bound for St. Louis. After arriving in St. Louis, Carl passed a line of rail workers on strike. He had no sympathy for them. One of the railroad's recruiters sized Carl up as he walked down the street. They were impressed by what they saw and approached him with an offer of employment in a bar that night. He was hired to work as a strike breaker. He had no loyalty to the striking workers, so the stigma of being a scab didn't bother him. When the men on strike tried to block the scabs from entering the work site, Carl would disperse them with the use of brute violence. They all returned to their duties for fear of retaliation from Carl Panzerin. Once the strike was over, Carl was paid a generous sum of money and sent on his way. There were no other offers of work because he became one of the most hated men in St. Carl used some of his railway money to buy a pair of guns from a backstreet vendor. 
He also outfitted himself with a young man who was typically referred to among transients as a punk. They were also dubbed Angelinas. These boys were usually teen runaways. Men like Carl Panzerum would essentially abduct them and force them into slavery. They were used for sexual gratification and to assist in crimes, wherever they would provide an advantage their owner, or yag as they were called, lacked. For example, if the boy were very small and lithe, he could enter confined spaces and open buildings for his owner to rob. Essentially, this was human trafficking. Carl and his punk committed several burglaries across the United States during their time together. Though Carl had not been able to perfect the craft of safe-cracking, he understood it enough to establish a steady revenue stream. Carl was a cheapskate, spending money only when it was absolutely necessary. For example, he only bought clothing for himself and his punk when they were threadbare. Their luck ran out in Jacksonville, Texas. During a break-in, they were caught by the police. They were sentenced to work as part of a road crew. Carl lost the punk when the boss confiscated him and put him in his own tent. Carl was infuriated, but there were too many armed officers around him to avenge the slight, so he let it slide. The punk was tossed out of the tent a week later. Nobody dared take him away from Carl. They knew about how enraged he became the last time the boy was pried away from him. Carl tried to escape one night. His punishment was to be whipped while bound to what was referred to as the snorting pole. He was stood on his tiptoes. They stripped him naked. They lashed his back with snake whips. Lead weights were attached to the tips. Carl was whipped for an hour. He didn't utter a sound the entire time. This was child's play after what he had been through. Carl would later say that in the aftermath there was blood on his back and murder in his heart. He was released from the pole immediately. After he dressed, he walked away and didn't look back. He didn't even take the Angelina with him. They wondered what he could do to survive after he'd lost everything. For a while he lived like a feral carnivore. He raided chicken coops and burned them down. He would start grass fires just for the fun of it, but also to vent some of his rage. With all his possessions and money gone, his only companions were power and rage. Carl escaped from Texas aboard a train. He got off in Oregon. He worked as a seasonal logger. With the advent of winter came the loss of his position with the logging company. He immediately returned to a life of crime. As he traveled down the Pacific coast, he left a trail of men beaten black and blue and purged of their pocket money. He wasn't picky about what he stole this time around. He planned to fence the goods after arriving in San Francisco. When he tried to sell a man a gold watch in a bar, it turned out that his so-called customer was an undercover police officer. He was nearly slapped with a seven-year sentence for grand larceny, but he was let off after confessing and detailing all the items he stole and where he stashed them. That is, this was the promise he was given. The judge gave him the sentence anyway, 
arguing that Pansrum was an unrepentant recidivist incapable of rehabilitation. The staff of Oregon State Penitentiary clearly did not know what kind of beast they were dealing with. His rage endowed him with a kind of superhuman strength that enabled him to bend the rusty bars of his cell and pull them out of their sockets. He escaped. Instead of leaving the building, he went on a rampage. He stuffed rags into every lock he found so nobody could come and go within the building. Every guard he encountered was beaten unconscious. When he found the workshop, he set the building ablaze. It was pandemonium. Everybody had to be evacuated, including Carl. It took every guard still conscious to do this. After bringing him outdoors, they pinned him to the ground and broke his ankles with hammers. During the rest of his stay at the prison, he was placed in solitary confinement, what would be referred to in modern prisons as the hole. He slept on the floor. He starved. He was in unrelenting pain because his bones were never set. As a consequence, the healing process left the bones crooked. He never received medical treatment. Carl was soon transferred to the Salem Correctional Facility. At the time, Salem was notorious for being the roughest penitentiary in the United States. Carl knew from experience that the worst thing he could do was show weakness. Sure enough, as soon as he was placed in a cell, he filled a chamber pot and threw it at the first guard that walked by. There was a price to be paid for this behavior. He was beaten by a posse of guards until he passed out. He was chained face first to the door of his cell. He couldn't escape this torture, but he screamed and insulted anybody who walked by. As always, he refused to let them break his spirit, even with broken bones. A guard known by the pseudonym Vinegar was known for the kind of brutal punishments that the common man could not endure. Carl could endure anything. One of the prison's methods of torture consisted of chaining the inmate naked to a wall and blasting him with a fire hose. They subjected Carl to this several times, on one occasion resulting in his eyes swelling shut. Considering the lack of emotional reaction, they might as well have been spraying the wall behind Carl. Another time, he was submerged in a bathtub and given electric shocks. They were not strong enough to do any lasting damage. All these tortures only left Carl resolved to get even. He set fire to the workshop. As chaos sent the inmates and guards into a frenzy while they sought refuge, Carl procured an axe that was used by the grounds crew. This piqued Carl's bloodlust, and he chased guards around the prison grounds. He helped some of the inmates escape as the institution came apart. Carl's punishment was 61 days in an area known internally as the Dungeon. It was a solitary cell located underground. He lived in a world of darkness. He was not fed. Blinded by the opacity, he survived by eating the cockroaches that scurried around the filthy floor. Expectations for this punishment were high. Staff and convicts alike assumed that if his body survived, his sanity would not. To their surprise, there was little change in the man when he emerged, save for the few pounds he lost on his diet of vermin. 
The staff hadn't changed Carl's ways. He created and initiated escape plans constantly with the assistance of other inmates. Carl finally escaped on May 12, 1918. Guards were aware he was fleeing and they shot in his general direction, but they missed, even after 200 rounds were fired. During his new life as a fugitive, Carl Pansrum frequently changed his name and altered his appearance. He committed more crime and was often arrested, but he escaped from custody every time. Carl was in Texas when he committed his first murder. He hadn't planned it out that way. His intention was to beat and rape a young man who was flushed with cash on his way home from work. The boy fought back as long as he could, but he was no match for Carl Pansrum. Carl decided to get his kicks as well, raping the boy. He choked him as he did so. The French have often referred to the orgasm as le petit mort, meaning the little death. After Carl's little death, the boy's overpowering and final death was discovered. However satisfying the sex may have been for Carl, it didn't compare to the rush it gave him now that he knew he had taken a life. This was a whole new form of power for him. Whiskey and sex didn't compare. This wasn't mere pleasure. It was profound joy and satisfaction. This changed everything. His intentions for the near future consisted of heading for the East Coast. He considered the methods of execution that he might find at his disposal. He fantasized about poisoning New York City's tap water supply. The potential for a million-man massacre by employing this technique thrilled him. Fortunately for the people of New York, his drinking money was spent. He broke into a house that had once belonged to former President William Howard Taft. He stole enough money that he was able to buy a boat. He would meet a man and have him on board to work for him. After eating and plying the man with liquor, he would strip him, flip them over, and rape him. The next step was to take any possessions from the man that had some amount of value and keep them for himself. Finally, he would shoot the man, weight his foot with a large rock, and send him overboard. These rapes and murders happened to have occurred by an area called Execution Rock. He killed ten such men in this area. When Carl began to attract attention due to suspicions of larceny, he picked up a couple of men and set sail southward with the intention of becoming something of a pirate. Indeed, they robbed every yacht they encountered. He shared the spoils and liquor with the men liberally. Carl's approach to the raids was cold-blooded and cruel, and his mates soon realized he was smarter and more aggressive than they bargained for. Their destination was Long Beach Island. Carl Panzerum was a self-taught sailor. Because his experience was limited to tranquil nautical conditions, he was unprepared for the storm that swept the area. His ship, with all its stolen valuables, sank. He and his mates survived, though they outran him. They escaped death's clutches twice. Carl planned on killing them both. Carl was left with nothing and no one. He even lost Taft's pistol. That left him especially bitter. Carl Pansrum returned to the railroad. 
he resumed his old routine of sexual and physical battery. The problem was, this no longer satisfied him. He wanted blood. His addiction was murder, and nothing else would do. In 1921, Pansrum relied on burglary to support himself. Unfortunately for Carl, the owners, and their domestic staff, the occupants were home at the time. He was arrested soon after. He avoided a lengthy prison sentence by giving a false name to police. Since they believed it to be his first offense, he was only sentenced to six months. His time in prison gave him an opportunity to recharge his batteries and get on an even keel. He established himself as someone who was not to be trifled with, so everyone gave him a wide berth. After his release, he sought employment with the Flying Squadron of the Seamen's Union. He was assigned to the task of ensuring that scabs regretted any attempt to break the strike. He would break bones or even push them into the water nearby to eliminate any doubt of his integrity as a thug. When a group of men dubbed the Blacklegs brought in firearms as reinforcements, Carl opened fire before they got a chance. Both sides were trading bullets when the police arrived. Most of the Union backed off as the police got involved, but not Carl Pansrum. Carl and the others in the picket line fired at the police until they ran out of ammunition. Because Pansrum was remembered as the ringleader of the gunfight, he was investigated by police. They discovered his criminal history with all its prison sentences and false identities. He managed to leave before they could take him into custody. Carl stowed away on a boat to escape. Though the captain was angered to learn Carl had stowed away on his ship, Carl earned his keep with what skills he had acquired as a captain in his own right. He went with the boat all the way to Africa. The captain was so pleased with his work, he begged him to stay, but Carl declined the offer. He was too used to the freedom to roam and do as he pleased. The last thing he wanted was to be literally anchored to one spot. He did accept a position with an oil company in Angola. He worked as a supervisor of a hard-working team and enforced company protocol and discipline with despotic zeal. At times, he was outright abusive with his men, and in this country, there were no labor laws to stop him. He wanted to live and be perceived as a normal man in Angola. The problem was, homosexuality was not considered normal by the local society. He would have to find it within himself to engage in sexual congress with a female, no matter how repugnant it was for him. Instead of going to local bars to find a woman, he approached a family with two underage daughters. He asked them to name their price for the oldest girl. She was eight years old. After strenuous negotiations, a price of six American dollars was agreed upon. One condition established by Pansrum was that the girl must be a virgin. Her father assured him she had never interacted with a man sexually. Carl wasn't the trusting sort, so he brought the girl to his cabin. His intention was to have sex with her that night, to prove to himself that he was a real man. This was easier said than done. When it came to men, he had no trouble getting aroused and performing the act. Women could not stimulate him, regardless of their age. 
He blamed his lack of interest in heterosexuality on a fear of infection. To find evidence that the girl was a virgin, he examined her vagina. He strangled her to keep her screams from being heard by others in the labor camp. He went back to the town of Luanda, where the girl came from, and demanded that her parents exchange her for her sister. He insisted that the first girl may have already lost her virginity. He took the six-year-old with him back home. Meanwhile, the eight-year-old waited for the town's doctor to come by and stitch up the wound Carl broke into her. As Carl walked back to the camp with the six-year-old in tow, the sight of them both raised eyebrows. Everybody knew what was going on. Nobody protested. They knew Carl's retaliation would ensure their regret in doing so. Also, the colonialist company didn't care as long as no Caucasians were harmed. Inside his cabin, Carl stripped the girl naked. He badly wanted to be like the other men in the camp sexually, but it just was not so. He felt that his lack of interest in females marked him as some kind of monster. Besides, the only activities that gave him pleasure were violence, arson, and sodomy. In a rare act of mercy, he dressed the little girl and took her back to her family's home. He didn't demand a refund. He felt that the value in this experience was that he now knew the truth of the nature of his sexuality. Carl turned to one of his old coping mechanisms, the bottle. He befriended a young local who worked as a waiter. Carl tried to talk the boy into having gay sex with him. He told him about figures in ancient Greek cultures who engaged in homosexuality freely. The boy was not interested, but Carl was not in the habit of taking no for an answer, so he raped him. His victim reported Carl to his supervisor. Normally the management wouldn't care about what happened to black workers. This was a different scenario. Homosexuality was viewed as being within the rubric of perversion. Firing Carl would practically have been a kindness, considering how his actions would soon besmirch his reputation. After his supervisor gave him a stern rebuke for his actions, Carl got up and punched him in the face. He didn't stop there. He beat the man until he was too weakened to haul himself up from the floor. Carl picked up his chair and bludgeoned the man. Carl stormed out of the camp, his bags packed. By the time he left, his now former supervisor was in a coma. Though he had a last paycheck coming to him, he knew better than to collect it at that point. He went to the American consulate to arrange for a spot on a boat heading home. The consul refused his request. Carl's reputation as a felon with a penchant for brute violence preceded him. A package arrived in the consulate from New England briefing the consulate on his criminal history. The man told Carl he was a monster and America did not want him back. His advice was to disappear into the forest and never return to civilized society again. The only thing awaiting Carl Pansrum in America was a prison sentence. Carl returned to Luanda and considered his prospects for survival. One day, a 12-year-old boy with a limited command of English approached Carl. He was employed by the oil company and asked Carl for help locating the encampment to which he was assigned. Carl promised he would help him, but his altruism was deceptive. He took the boy to a quarry that was no longer in use. Realizing what was happening, 
The boy was terrified. Carl tore his clothes off and threw him to the ground. The boy screamed loud enough to be heard throughout the quarry as Pandrum forced his way inside the boy. He buggered him. Not realizing who he was up against, the boy tried to fight him off. Carl grabbed the boy's head in both hands. He pounded it against a rock in sync with his thrusts. He hammered the boy's skull beneath him as hard as he could. Blood gushed from the boy's ears. He continued to flail and struggle. Determined to put a stop to this, Carl slammed the boy's head down harder, smashing his skull, leaving it in fragments. With this, he had an orgasm. As Carl put his pants back on, he looked down at the figure of the boy, who was now dead. He was overjoyed. The boy's brain was oozing out of his ears in gelatinous hunks as the perimeter of the pool blood beneath him expanded. Carl set fire to the encampment before leaving down the coast. Pandrum settled in a fishing village called Lobito Bay. His money went a long way there, and he spent some of it on a hunting expedition to find crocodiles. This wasn't Pandrum's real interest. He wanted to be alone with other men in the jungle. After setting up camp, he lured one man away late at night. Nobody knew what was going on since they were asleep. Even the gunshot could not rouse them since it was such a common sound in those parts. When Carl returned to the camp, he lured another man away. That man found out what happened to the first when Carl raped him. As Carl brought him to the spot where he was assaulted, the man saw the corpse of the first man with a bullet in his head. One by one, Carl raped and murdered every man before stealing the money he paid them to bring him there in the first place. After raping and murdering the last man at the camp, he stole their boat and looked forward to a life of leisure as a fugitive playboy of sorts. That life didn't last long. When he met with locals, they were aware that the men who took him hunting for crocodiles were dead. They didn't buy his story that they were killed by crocodiles. The men were seasoned and highly skilled hunters. The villagers hated him and wanted to retaliate, but they did nothing. They knew that if a white man were murdered in Lobito Bay, the Portuguese colonialists would exterminate the entire village. This enabled Carl to escape unscathed. As he descended down the Golden Coast, he tried to stow away on ships bound for America, but they were warned about him, and he remained in Africa for the time being. Instead, he hopped aboard a boat heading to Portugal. He revealed himself to the captain and crew a few days after they were at sea. He persuaded the captain to let him stay on the boat. He agreed to work to earn his passage. Though he enjoyed Lisbon, the local authorities did not appreciate his presence there. He had begun robbing some of the locals, and it was not tolerated as it had been in Angola. Less than a week after his arrival, he appealed to the American embassy to send him home to the United States. The Portuguese were aware of Carl's background as an arch-criminal, so they were not willing to help him. He successfully stowed away on a British ship that was bound for Scotland. The ship was too far gone to turn back, and because they had a zero-tolerance policy when it came to stowaways, he was chained up in the brig. 
The crew did not feed him, so he resorted to eating rats. Other punishments awaited him upon landfall, but he slipped out hidden in the laundry before he could be apprehended for the year-long prison stint to which Scottish legal authorities sentenced him. He approached some American seamen who were unaware of his criminal past. He convinced them to hire him as part of their crew. His return to America was finally assured. With the Prohibition era in full swing, gangsters were wealthier and more powerful than ever in the United States. He acquired a handgun. He took it everywhere. He had the tool to do the job. He had the lack of empathy. He had the lack of remorse. He had a capacity for cruelty. As far as the requisite criteria one must possess to be a cold-blooded killer goes, he had it all. Well, almost. He needed the opportunities. The Mafia didn't outfit him with these opportunities, but he would find them nonetheless. July 18, 1922. 11-year-old George Henry McMahon was running an errand for a local entrepreneur named Margaret Leons. She owned a restaurant and sent him to buy milk. George began his trek to the market, but was soon interrupted. He heard a man behind him say, What's that you got there? George said, That's my shopping pail, mister. I'm fetching some milk from the store. The man was Carl Pansrum. He said, Could you walk me? I don't know my way around town yet. The two got to know each other on the way to the store. George was generous with details of his life, while Carl dazzled him with stories about his travels and adventures overseas. Carl bought them both sodas. After the shopping trip, they had their beverages and were about to part ways when Carl grabbed George by the arm. He said, How would you like to make 50 cents? Adjusted for inflation, Carl offered George the equivalent of $26. Though George wouldn't normally abandon a job in progress, he knew he could buy more milk with what he was being offered, so he went with Carl. They took a trolley to a deserted section of town. Still dazzled by the monetary offer and the possibilities of what he would do with it, George was likely shocked when Carl told him the truth of what he had in store for him. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to sodomize you until you die. I'm going to smash in your skull until your brain leaks out your ears. Do you understand me? George was too sheltered and trusting to understand the implications of Carl's remarks. Carl dragged him toward the edge of town. He stripped him naked. George tried to fight his way out of it, but he was no match for Carl Pansrum. Carl laughed at George's attempt to escape his grasp. Carl pinned him to the ground. Gravel poked into George's back. Carl grabbed him by the throat. He raped him. He savored the experience, violating him steadily for three hours. George screamed and whimpered from the pain. This only egged Carl on. It reminded Carl of his experience with the Angolan boy. After his climax, Carl grabbed hold of George's head and smashed it against a rock until he died. It wasn't difficult. George lost the will to fight back after an hour of being raped. Carl cleaned himself up. 
He stuffed numerous sheets of paper down George's throat. His motivation was to leave a signature. The signature would be different with each kill so that the police wouldn't know that the same man committed every murder. He covered George's body with tree branches to delay the discovery of George's corpse. Though he took precautions against being seen, two people observed Carl running from the scene with a magazine in one hand. The murder received considerable media attention, and the witnesses who saw Carl Pansrum fleeing the scene were asked to look at a lineup of suspects. Carl Pansrum was not among them. During his yachting days, Carl Pansrum became very used to living a life of privilege. He went to New York State's Westchester County to find another vessel he could steal. He did not succeed at this, so he accepted a position as a night watchman at a Becco Mill Company. He was hired because he was so tough. Nobody would be foolhardy enough to break into the building with Carl Pansrum on guard. This position gave him the stability that eluded him for some time. He even got an apartment nearby. One of the perks of this job, from Pansrum's perspective, was the presence of a teenage boy named George Wallison. George would linger after a shift and smoke a cigarette with Carl before his shift began. Eventually, this became a social interaction to which they both looked forward. Eventually, they would share a bottle of moonshine. Carl wanted to have sex with him, and one night he took the initiative. He put George down onto his knees. He mounted him. Unlike the others, George didn't fight back. To Carl's surprise, he was impatient to disrobe and get on with it. This marked the first time in Carl Pansdrum's life that he had consensual sex with a man. Carl was a little dumbfounded afterwards. He wasn't used to the lack of force. He also didn't know how to react when George tried to kiss him goodnight. Consent presented a culture shock. George was disappointed when Carl didn't engage him in the kiss, but he continued to have sex with Carl night after night. Carl began to develop tender feelings for George. This was another thing he didn't anticipate. Adjusting to this level of intimacy was jarring. Carl wanted to keep the boy, but he told him he would quit his job and leave, whereupon he would eventually come back to get George. They kissed goodbye, and it felt wrong to him somehow. It had nothing to do with the moral code of mainstream society. He just felt that being this sensitive and vulnerable with another human being was not suited to him. After all, he saw vulnerability as little more than a magnet for victimhood. Pan's room got a new boat in Providence, Rhode Island. He made plans to acquire a nest egg so he could live comfortably at sea. He was looking forward to showing George how he lived as a pirate. Carl committed a few armed robberies and burglaries to gather the money he would need to live comfortably. He robbed several yachts, knowing that the owners typically went home at night. He obtained a gun that belonged to a police commissioner. For a man so fixated on revenge, this brought Carl tremendous satisfaction. When Carl felt he was ready, he picked up George and they set sail on the 25th of June. Carl was determined to keep the truth about his past a secret from George. George did not enjoy this life. He got seasick. Carl tried to sell the boat, and when a potential seller tacitly informed him that he was going to steal the boat from him, 
Carl shot the man. George witnessed this and was paralyzed with terror as Carl riffled through the man's pockets. George suddenly realized that Carl was not the man he thought he was. Carl said to him, Fetch me out the spare anchor. We've got to get rid of him. George said, You shot him. Carl, It was him or us, and I like us better. George, We need to tell the police. Carl, You think the police believe the word of men like us? They'll say we lured him out here to sodomize him and take his money. You can't trust the police, Georgie. They'll try to stick anything on you that they can. George. But he's dead. Carl. And we ain't. We've got to get rid of him and keep on moving if we don't want to spend the rest of our days breaking rocks. Carl retrieved the spare anchor himself and tied it to the man's leg. He tossed him overboard. George didn't sleep easy that night. He would wake to the sight of Carl staring at him, anticipating what he would do next. It was as if Carl's trust in George sank along with the spare anchor. Carl had plans. He intended to establish a revenue stream from catching fish. The other plan was to convince George to see things his way, which would preclude keeping his mouth shut. Considering how disturbed George was by the murder he witnessed, it wasn't going to be easy. Carl didn't get the opportunity to achieve either of these goals. When Carl was gone looking for fishing equipment to steal, George jumped ship. He was at a long distance from the shore, but he was determined to get there. Some fishermen spotted him in Newburgh and rescued him. The first words out of George's mouth were, Police! I need the police! George told the police that Carl brought him aboard the boat under false pretenses, promising employment. He said Carl raped him repeatedly during the entire trip. He reported the murder, though he didn't know the man's name and could only indicate the general area the body was dumped. That last point wasn't very helpful, but the police were satisfied with his account. They issued an alert to all port cities up and down the Hudson River to be on the lookout for one Captain John O'Leary, a pseudonym used by Carl. When Carl returned to the boat, he was devastated to find that George had disappeared. Somehow his capacity to feel hurt and rejection hadn't been beaten out of him. He briefly searched for the boy in Poughkeepsie, but he soon moved on unsure as to what George may have reported about his activities. He settled down for the night at a boat yard near the village of Nyack. He went to sleep without the comforting presence of George at his side. He woke to the sight of a shotgun barrel in his face and a police officer behind it. Carl Panzerum was arrested on charges of sodomy, burglary, and robbery. He was remanded to a jail in Yonkers. He tried to escape with the help of a few other inmates, but he was caught. He was placed in solitary confinement. Carl offered his yacht, worth $10,000, to his public defender so that half of that money could be used to pay his bail. His attorney agreed to these conditions, and they shook hands. Carl was a free man by the end of the day. His lawyer got snowed. The yacht was stolen and was not registered by Pansrum. It was seized by police. 
When the lawyer went to the hotel where Carl was staying to confront him about the fraud, he found that Pansroom had disappeared. Carl Pansroom stole another yacht and set sail down the coast. This boat was in considerable disrepair and soon crashed into some rocks. In a town called Larchmont, he took an axe and broke into a train station where there was much luggage to be searched and valuables to be stolen. A police officer showed up. The officer dropped his gun out of fright at the sight of the menacing figure of Carl Pansrum charging towards him with the axe. He had tried to wrestle the axe out of Carl's hands. Carl was weakened by the shipwreck and the lack of sleep. The cop yanked the axe from his hands and forced his wrists into cuffs. Carl was linked to other robberies and burglaries. His bail was set at $5,000 and he was placed in a holding cell. He was interrogated and while doing so, admitted to his true identity and the full extent of his criminal history. He was sentenced to five years to be served in the notorious Sing Sing prison. Pansrum wasted no time in establishing himself in the alpha position. Inmates and guards alike were too afraid to dislodge him from his lofty status. Once when Carl was in the process of raping an inmate, a guard tried to pull him off. Carl's reaction was to redirect his amorous intentions to the guard. It took four other guards to pry the man from his clutches. Sing Sing was no match for Carl Pansrum. The New York State penal system transferred him to Clinton Prison, also known as Danamora. This prison was located 10 miles from the Canadian border, and many of its guards only spoke French. These guards communicated with metal canes. He was stripped and beaten when he arrived. On the other side of the courtyard was the State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. When inmates of Danamora were broken by the brutality of its disciplinary measures, they were sent to the hospital. One could hear the screaming and crying in the hospital from Danamora. Carl acclimated successfully to Danamora. Before a week passed, he made a firebomb in the workshop. The guards discovered the bomb before it could be detonated. One day, Carl bludgeoned a guard over the head with a club that weighed 10 pounds. The man dropped to the floor. He was unconscious. Carl assumed he was dead on impact, but though he got a concussion, the guard survived the attack. He didn't survive without lasting damage, however. He acquired motor control problems. He slurred his words and would lose his train of thought whenever he was stressed. Carl was treated with the amount of respect by the guards and inmates to which he felt he was entitled. One night, Pansrum attempted to escape using a ladder that was crudely constructed from a variety of materials. Once he reached the top of the ladder, it gave way and he fell 30 feet. He landed on a concrete step. He was extensively injured. Both ankles were broken, as were his legs and his spine. He also ruptured his groin. He had endured many physical tortures throughout his life, but nothing compared to this. He couldn't contain the agony. It demanded to be manifested vocally. He screamed throughout the night. Nobody came to his rescue. They assumed it was a patient in the hospital. He lay there all night with some of his innards hanging out of his body. 
It got to the point where the agony was too great to withstand, and he passed out. When the morning rolled around, Carl's tough guy facade had worn away. He begged some guards for assistance. Four of them carried him to the main building. He thanked them. Not only was this sincere show of gratitude uncharacteristic for Panzerum, but they saw him cry. Under any other circumstances, there was no way he would have allowed them to witness that. Medical services in prisons are often limited, and there was nothing the available surgeons could do to return his legs to their original condition. The surgery on his groin was successful, though one of the staff ordered that one of his testicles be removed, assuming that it might reduce his aggressive behavior. It didn't work. It only left him in a vindictive frame of mind. To reassure himself that his sexual prowess had not disappeared or diminished, he raped another prisoner who was receiving medical care. A doctor arrived just before the act was completed, but not before Carl climaxed, satisfied that he was every bit the man he always was. Pan's room was placed in solitary confinement for the rest of his five-year sentence. He crawled around on his stomach like a serpent to avoid putting weight on his legs. He literally tried to bite one of the hands that fed him. Every time he tried this stunt, he was denied food for a week. Carl Panzerum was released in 1928. He had plans. He would commit mass murder and collect the proceeds from the pockets of the victims. He would invest it and, having become wealthy, enjoy a prosperous retirement. This fantasy, to some degree, resembled the life he was living in Angola, but would be comparably more opulent. First, he needed startup capital. He decided the way to raise this money was to commit a few burglaries. The system could beat him, starve him, and lock him up with no windows, but it couldn't change him, and it didn't. He had much money to make, but that would wait. In the meantime, he would indulge in the pleasures of the flesh. He found that flesh in a boy named Alexander Uzaki. Alexander was an Eastern European immigrant and understood very little English. Carl managed to convey that he wanted Alexander to accompany him to an abandoned warehouse. He promised Alexander some cash. Once at the warehouse, Carl forced Alexander's clothes off. Alexander tried to run and scream, but Carl grabbed him by the throat and forced him into submission. Carl continued to choke Alexander as he raped him. By the time Carl was finished, Alexander was dead. Carl threw his body into a pile of garbage. Carl went toward Baltimore. He would mug someone to obtain the money he needed to buy burglary tools. He cornered a young man in an alleyway. The man was not cooperative. He put his hands up, ready for a fight. Carl beat the boy so badly he left him dead. The money he removed from the boy's corpse was rust-colored from blood. Carl bought the tools in Washington, D.C. He committed a series of burglaries. The unending pain in his legs converted distress into rage, and he wasn't always thinking clearly, leading to some sloppy work. He was caught by police while robbing one dwelling. Though he tried to fight them, receiving a few whacks to his legs by their nightsticks was all it took to take him down. The pain was worse than ever now. He screamed curses and threats at the jail staff. They laughed it off. 
He threatened to rape their sons and choke them to death with his bare hands. They knew that in the state he was in, there was little he could do. Nevertheless, they got tired of hearing it, so they clubbed him unconscious. The police took an interest in his history of murdering children. The only such crime they could get him for was the murder of George McMahon. He was convicted for this crime and received a life sentence. He was placed in Leavenworth Prison. Though his ability to rumble with the worst of the prison population was now severely curtailed due to his injuries, he nevertheless made a crucial announcement in the mess hall his first day there. You all know who I am and what I've done. I will kill the first man that bothers me. Nobody did bother him. One afternoon, the laundry foreman, Robert Warnke, visited Carl's room. Carl felt this was invasive. He clubbed Robert over the head with a copper pipe. Even after Robert fell unconscious to the floor, Pan's room continued to beat him. Carl left Robert's head deformed. The pipe was warped from being banged against Robert's skull. Carl dropped the pipe and burst into laughter. He was delighted to know that the system hadn't beaten the homicidal maniac out of him. Following this incident, Carl was escorted directly to death row. Carl Pan's room welcomed the death penalty. The pain from his injuries was never-ending, and he yearned for relief. Anti-capital punishment activists wrote letters of protest. Carl would respond to them with threats of gruesome violence. Another argument for keeping him alive emerged. By studying him, scholars could understand the criminal mind better. Carl Panzerum had no intentions of accommodating such a thing. He wanted to get his execution over with. He got his wish. On September 5, 1930, he was brought to the gallows to be hung. Impatient, he said to the executioner, Hurry it up, you Hoosier bastard. I could have hung ten men in the time it took you to tie that knot. He spat in the man's face and ducked his head into the noose. He insulted and cursed every person in attendance. This went on and on. It occurred to the executioner that it may never end, so he pulled the lever. Carl Panzerum's neck was snapped in mid-sentence. Whatever he said during those final moments, he didn't convince the witnesses he was a human monster. His actions accomplished that handily by the time he got there. The following quote has been attributed to an autobiography that Carl Panzerum wrote during his final days at Leavenworth Prison before his execution. I have no desire whatever to reform myself. My only desire is to reform other people who try to reform me. And I believe that the only way to reform people is to kill them. My motto is, rob them all, rape them all, and kill them all. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.